First Kings chapter 17. Um, I will be out of town on Thursday, and usually you've got to be in town both weeks for Monday and Thursday if you're teaching one of the ladies, but I, I think I begged Denise, please let me have the widow. She is definitely one of my Mount Rushmore. If Mount Rushmore had women, she'd be on that for me. Absolutely. And Elijah is one of my Mount Rushmore guys. Totally. I love him. I love that he's fiery. I love that he's courageous. I love that he's humble. I love that he is obedient. So what is this story about? This is a big story. One chapter I believe there's a thousand lessons in this one, one chapter. A thousand. One fact is that God loves little, defenseless, alone widows. Who wants to say amen to that? And, and this is a powerful story about that. He loves their children too. He loves single moms. His eye is upon them, and he loves their children. It's also about the fact that he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. We woven into his plan. How did she show up in this great story? Also, one of the lessons is he sets up divine appointments. Love that. I love that God uses small things to do big things. Love that. I love all these. But to me, the flashing, flashing, brilliant light out of this week's lesson that I've been studying it for four weeks now, and it has just followed me around everywhere. The flashing big lessons to me is the leading of God by his Holy Spirit. God is a speaking God. And the question that the Lord has just totally every day, maybe 10 times a day, cornered me, will I listen? Will I listen to his promptings, to his small, still voice saying, do this, do this small thing, because I've asked you to. I know I've read this little story several times through the years, but it just has to be read as we start out. And it's about a man named George Cutting. I hope I haven't read this recently. <laughs> I'm in so many places, I forget what I read. But um, I'm again falling in love with this little story. Uh, a man named George Cutting, and he was evangelist, and he was walking down the street of a small English village, and he had the distinct impression, say that with me, the distinct impression that he should call out these words, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Well, he looks around and nobody's standing there. So he goes, okay, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he had the distinct impression to say it again. All right. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, a few months later, he was going door to door at some of the houses in this village. And he knocked on a, a little cottage 
And, and he asked if the lady knew the Savior, and she assured him joyfully that she did belong to the Savior. And he said, well, how did that happen, ma'am? She told him that six months previously, she was in deep conviction of sin. There in that little cottage, she cried out to the Lord for help. Right at that moment, she said, she heard the words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And she said, God, if that's you, say it again. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you that you can use small moments of obedience, small moments to do big things. And God, we pray that your spirit be strong tonight and that you speak to us, stir us up, spread us out. Let us break down the boundaries of what we're willing to say yes to you. God, I love Elisha. I love this widow, God. And Lord, I love their story. Shake us up, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, verse 1 of chapter 17, And Elisha the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew or rain these years except at my word. James tells us that it was three and a half years that it would be until it would rain. Elijah, as he just jumps into the scene from nowhere, We've never even heard of him before. He walks before the king and he says this bold, bold-faced statement. There will be no rain king for three and a half years. Revival was on his heart. Revival was on his heart. And that's what this was all about. The widow of Zarephath, if we, as we look at her tonight... Her life circumstances put her in a dangerous, vulnerable position. And we will look at Elisha, who in obedience to God, purposely stepped into a dangerous, vulnerable position. Because it was God's destiny that their lives would intersect. So again, what is this story about? It's about real people who lived in hard times. Welcome to our world. There was a wicked king and a wicked queen who had ruled, who ruled at that time the nation of God that was to be a, na a godly nation. First Kings 17.1 tells us that Elijah went before that king how could he make such a bold-faced, confident statement? Well, this is why. He knew the times that he lived in. There was idolatry and cruelty, not just in the leadership, but in the everyday lives of God's people. He also knew his God. Here is an unbreakable truth and promise God loves people. 
He loves to bless us. And it breaks his heart when we turn our back on him and when he must withdraw his blessings of love. And Elijah knew the word of God. Deuteronomy tells us that God said, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, he'll set you on high above all other nations, and the Lord will open to you his good treasure. The heavens will give rain in its seasons and bless the work of your hands. But if not, but if not, I will make your heavens over your head like bronze, and I will change the rain to dust. That is the word of God, and Elijah knew it. To truly understand our dear widow of Zarephath, we have to understand the world that she lived in. We'll go back to Kings 16, verse 29, talks about a god, a, a, a king named Omri. And he was king over the nation of Israel. When he died, Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel, Samaria, over Israel in Samaria, 22 years. In our nation, the worst we have to bear through is eight years <laughs> of a bad president. They had to dwell through 22 years of Ahab. Verse 30, now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than anybody who had ever been before him. That's wicked. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nephat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served and worshipped Baal. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab made, did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who before him. And what was Baal worship? What was it really like? In this book, Haley's Handbook, has the saddest picture in the entire book. And it shows that very near, very near, this temple that Ahab built for Baal, there was a little steps away. There was a cemetery full of jars of little babies' bodies that had been sacrificed to this horrible, wicked worship. This was the atmosphere in which these events happened. In the light of this dark atmosphere, we step into the, one of the most unusual and interesting stories in the entire Bible. A fiery, fire, fiery fearless, obedient prophet of God and a young woman who grew up in a nation that honored this vicious Baal idol whose worship demanded this kind of killing of babies. But God, in this story, God's character is on display. God's love, 
God's faithfulness and God's unusual ways. That's my favorite part. Elijah must have known. I think this is a banner verse over this entire story. One of those simple ones that all of us probably know. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. In light of this story, listen carefully. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. That's what we see in this story. He must have known this. He must have known this powerful, powerful proverb. But I'll tell you the truth. It's one thing to know it in your head, but it's one thing to do it in practical ways of saying yes to God. In verse 3, in verse 3, as we read on, then the word of the Lord came to him saying, get away, get away, basically run for your life and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook that I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Verse 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. So this was a defining moment for Elijah, first of all, to go brazenly before this vicious, powerful king, and then to obey this very unusual instructions. God said, when you go to this brook out in the wilderness, ravens will feed you. Well, if you know anything about ravens, they are horrible birds. They are, they eat roadkill. They eat roadkill. And another fact about ravens, they don't even feed their own young. So the question is, could God do that? Could God instruct such a horrible bird to do that? To do this sensible, reasonable, kind, generous thing? To bring him food? Could he change the native instinct of birds? Elijah had to trust that. Be aware what a challenge this must have been to trust God and obey. He had to go away from everything he knew. All society had to be absolutely 1,000% dependent on nobody and nothing but the promises of God. Verse 5 is a defining moment for Elijah. I know we're going to get to her, but this whole story is a package deal. So he went. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Obedience, radical, no turning back, step out in faith, obedience. That's hardcore in this story. In fact, there are four moments that are keys that unlock 
the beauty and the wonder of this story. There in 1 Kings 17, verse 5, so he went. And then in verse 10, we'll see, so she arose and went. So he he arose and went again. Verse 15, then she went and did. And in verse 19, he, Elijah, took the child. These are four powerful moments in this story that I believe can change our life. Or they should. And I believe in the times that we're living. And so they must. So they must. Scene one, we just read, Elijah was really a nobody. But in this, in this moment, he lived holy. And I love that phrase, in the audience of one. Even though Ahab was the king of the nation, he realized, Elijah realized and he lived like God himself was on the throne. And therefore, the definition of living before the audience of one is that before all others, you've got nothing to gain, nothing to lose, and nothing to fear. Therefore, therefore, he trusted God. And there was a but God reality in his story. God was faithful. God was faithful. We don't know if he was there for six months. We don't know. This was a three and a half year long stretch. This whole event from the pronouncement of no rain to on Mount Carmel, which is later in the story, with, with um, Elijah battling the prophets of Baal. So was it a year? Was it a year and a half? Was it two years that he sat by that brook? But then we read the words in verse 7. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain on the land. And as I read that story, I thought this was the source of his survival, that brook. And yet the truth is, child of God, he had prayed for it. He was a godly man, and yet he had prayed that his nation would be so shook up that they would repent, and he was willing to suffer. But here at this moment, I can watch him walk, watching that brook getting smaller and smaller and smaller. It dried up. And then verse 8 comes. The word of the Lord came to him saying. That's an important sequence of events. Because, because what he now asked Elisha to do is way out of the box. Arise and go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. God spoke after. There was no other option but to obey. This very unusual now go. 
and just putting myself in his shoes. I don't know. We don't have dialogue here, but in my internal being, I can go, what? Not Seraphath. Seraphath, the, the Sidonians, that's Jezebel's people. Jezebel's dad is the king there. That's where Baal worship comes from. You could have this big argument with God, like, why there? But the word of the Lord had spoken to him that you must go there. Now, why would that ever make sense? Well, Jezebel and Ahab now probably outright, outrageously hated Elijah. Truth is, that would be the absolute last place they would look for him. And then it says these powerful words. So he arose, and so he went. Radical obedience that makes no logical sense. And the part of the story that's included from God is that he had commanded a widow of that nationality to feed him. Elisha's problem with the people of God is that they didn't obey God. And they were the people of God. How could it ever be that this woman from an a, a idolatrous, horrible nation would obey God? But he arose and went again. Sometimes we feel like nobody. Sometimes we take a stand for right. We do what we feel God has asked us to do. But then, first of all, we go to a desert time, and maybe some of you are, are there now. And, and then the next step seems like going from bad to worse. But when we look back on these times, and we're looking so comfortable in our little cozy Bible study chairs, reading this story, and it all comes together in just like 10 minutes before our face. But that's not the way it happens in real life, right? But now the sweet part that we just love. And when he came to, he arose and he did go to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, indeed, there was a widow there. And this little scene, I can hardly read it. With my, just without feeling pain in my heart and just wanting to cry, look at her. Look at her, not just words on the page, look at her. When he comes, there's this little gal, and why do I think she's young? Why, I do think she was young, because later in her story, she's carrying her little boy, and then Elijah carries him. I think she's young. I think she's very young. And we don't know her story. We don't know why she's a widow. We don't know if her husband was sent to war and he died far away. We don't know if he even saw his little boy. We just see her bending over and picking up sticks. Just little sticks, not pieces of firewood. And he called to her and said, please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. 
and as she was going to get it. That's such a, again, a powerful word. Water was scarce all over this entire region. We know her story because then he says, please bring me a morsel and bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I don't even have bread, only a handful of flour and a little oil. And I'm gathering these couple of sticks, these couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my little son that I may eat it and die. And Elijah said, don't fear, go and do as you've said, but make me first a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. And the bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Backing up to the scene, when Elijah sees her picking up this little pieces of sticks, he has no idea what she's processing, what she's processing in her soul. That this is her last meal. She's thinking of her little guy there, maybe crying from hunger. And she's bending up, picking on the sticks. And he says, give me a drink. I am amazed that the next thing she does and she starts off to get him a drink. I don't know if I was her, I'd be saying, I'm busy. <laughs> and just imagine, maybe he's lived by that brook for the last two years with not a shower. He must have looked like not Elijah, the one that should be on Mount Rushmore but some very straggly, undeserving person that he had, she had never laid eyes on. And who is he to ask her a drink in her tragic trauma moment? But I hope you fell in love with this gal. Because you know what? You know what happens when we're at the lowest low? This is what I've seen happen time and time again. When I go in the mission field, you know what I want? I don't want girls that have life easy. You give me a handful of girls that have gone through seriously tough times. And I'm telling you, they can recognize pain a mile off. And they have compassion that just got deep into their souls. When she looked at him, she knew what it felt like to be thirsty. And she started off to get him a drink of water. And then he asked for something to eat. And I think she was just telling him her story. I can get you a drink of water, but you know what? 
I just got nothing here. I got nothing here. And he made her a promise straight from the heart of God. And what this tells me is God loves her. She was not from a Christian home. She wasn't from a godly home. And God saw her. And God had commanded her. Because God puts eternity in every soul that's ever lived on the face of the earth. And somehow, I don't know how she processed that, how she imagined that there would be somebody coming to town who was hungry. And when he asked her and gave her this promise, it says she did it. And I just want to back up to each and every piece. What if they hadn't have? What if they hadn't have? What if they had missed those opportunities? And I want to say to you that opportunities come across our path every day of our lives. And are we hearing the voice of the Lord? And God sustained them day by day. I don't think there was ever a big bucket of flour or a big bucket of oil. I believe that day by day there was just enough for that day. And you know what? I'm ashamed of myself. I'm ashamed of myself that I don't open the refrigerator and, go, and just go, God, food! I have enough food in my house to probably not go to the store for like two months. But God does this beautiful thing when we live day by day, and maybe it's not food you need, maybe, maybe it's not just even money, maybe it's wisdom, maybe it's love for somebody that's the unlovely, maybe it's grace and forgiveness for yourself, maybe you're dealing with some fear issues, God, give me a courage to live through this day, God, help me to trust you today, this was a day by day by day gig who loved this story who loved it we love it we love it because it's so so God and it is so God and in these 16 verses of this chapter the word Lord is used eight times what that says to me is, when he is your Lord, when we turn everything into his hands, that he's responsible for us. I love that saying, when we see God's hand in everything, it's easier to put everything in God's hands. And this last moment, this last moment, now it happened. In the Bible, whenever it says that, I'm always thinking, uh-oh, something's going to happen. Now it happened. After these things, after all these wonderful, amazing, miraculous things, the son of the woman who owned the house became sick, and his sickness was so serious, there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what have I to do 
with you, O man of God, have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and kill my son? Do you remember? Do you remember what she said in verse 12? She said, as the Lord your God lives. As the Lord your God lives. And here at this moment, she's thinking, did your God see my sin? And is this what this is about? I know so many women, when they have tragedy in their life, they look back on some moment when they failed and say, God, are you punishing my children? And this woman lived in a a country of Baal worship. And maybe one of those babies in those jars was hers. And I'm saying that. I'm saying that. You heard Holly's story last week. And she told me her story. I was probably the second one in her whole life since she was 17. And when she told me her story, she was in her late 30s. Probably one of two people she had told it. And do you know after she told me her story, she turned to me and she said, and now I think you don't love me. That's the next thing that came out of her mouth. Is God punishing me because of this? And I want to say, I just want to look you in the eye. That is not our God. That's not our God. So she said to Elisha, what have I to do with you? And he said to her, give me your son. And this is where he becomes my my Mount Rushmore guy. Even more than any of his boldness. He took him, this little boy, out of her arms. And he carried him to the upper room where he was staying. Laid him on his bed. And he cried out to the Lord. Oh Lord my God, have you brought this tragedy on the widow whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, I can just see his face. I can just feel his heart. See, your child lives. Then the woman said to Elisha, Now by this, I know that you're a man of God. Now I know. And that the word of the Lord is in your mouth in truth. Verse 12. She called God his God. In verse 18, she thought that her God, his God was as cruel as the Baal God. But in verse 24, there was a divine shift. Verse 24. 
where the Lord, the God, was her God. And I know for me that it's, it's in my deepest tragedy. It's in my deepest neediness where I have nowhere else to go. That that's where God becomes our God Almighty. Who wants to say amen to that? Okay. Let's just bow our heads. And I know some of you, I know some of you, are going through times that you just can't even imagine. You can't even imagine how God could fix it. It's impossible. You feel like you're picking up sticks. And you feel like you can barely scrape together what you need to live on and press on. And in God's eyes, you are that little gal. He loved you the day you were born and before. He knows every minute of the hardship you're facing. He knows that you can't fix it. And I believe for somebody here that he wants to give you some, some, some act of trust, of just no evidence this is going to work, but you know God put it on your heart, trust. And he wants to show you that he can do exceedingly abundantly more than you ask or think. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. And Lord, I just pray that you would put your hand down on their hands right now. And that your spirit, the, the presence of your spirit, the purpose of your spirit, the power of your spirit would just go right into, down through their arm and into their hearts. And God, that you would just surround them with confidence in you and peace that you understand. And as Marianne spoke a few weeks ago and used that powerful term, it is well, it is well with my soul. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. And they all said, Amen. God bless you.